Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I wouldn't even burn tax law books <laughs> to keep warm. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I was captain of my high school's math team, quiz bowl team, and mock trial team. If there's a bigger <laughs> nerd in here, please point them out. Just pointing at you, Dan. Just <laughs> purely pointing at you. Got no other thing to point to. <laughs> you have my model UN and constitutional history team. Ooh. Beat. <laughs> okay. Well, Cap, once you're captain of the math team, I mean, Anna, everything flows to you. There's just no I mean, other way I, to put, you know. And I guess I did speech debate. I lettered in speech and debate. <laughs> Which it was so funny. My dad bought me a letter jacket to like put the letter on, and I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> that's really sweet, though." <laughs> I was like, "No, if I wear this in public, I will be pantsed." Like, Otto, you went to the University of Chicago. If you had worn that at the U of C, no, 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 you would have no. been worse. Well, if I'd worn it once I went to college, yes, yes. But in my high school, oh yeah, I'd you totally would have been like, pantsed. Yes, yes. I like yeah. swirlies are us, mm-hmm. you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been bad things. Fair enough. In any case, enough high school memories. Welcome to Space <laughs> the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of epistemic communities and neo-Pythagoreanism. Today is our third installment of Immigrary. Immigrary? Emmerichary. I think me. it's Emmerichary. 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 We'll be talking about the day after tomorrow. Next week, we dive into... Moonfall. <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought that Moonfall was going to be the climax of Emmerichary. But, Dan, you suggested 2012. Anna, there are so many ways I could respond to that. One of which is, you know, just because you have the climax doesn't mean the things have ended. <laughs> Good things come to those who wait, Dan. Yes. So... <laughs> So, yes, I I have requested that we do 2012 after Moonfall in no small part because I recognize that listeners might think that I am not a huge fan of Emmerich based on what we've watched so far. I actually think I like him a little bit better than perhaps I've, I've given the impression of. But I think 2012 is my favorite Emmerich because it is simultaneously the silliest and also has the most IR in it. It does? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's it's- actually like international negotiation and coordination in 2012. There really is. All right. And of course, it has my favorite Gen X Marxist. There you go. And, and there is capitalism in the film as well. There's a critique <laughs> of capitalism. capitalism. There is a critique of capitalism in the film. I guarantee Well, John Cusack just standing there is there a critique of capitalism. <laughs> Dan, how are you? Uh, I am good. I will hopefully be even feeling better after this is done since I have to go. <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. No, after. I'm sorry. I had to go to the hospital today, so oh. I will hopefully be feeling better uh, over the next week because I've had serious shoulder discomfort for the last three months, and I just had a cortisone shot, so hopefully that will remedy that. Well, I don't have any medical updates. There we go, oh, but... which is good. And, and, and so, that, so that's good. How are you doing? Huh? Yes. Well, I'm doing actually pretty good. The sun came out here, so it's now just cold, not cold and icy. And of course, because it was cold and icy... The other day, <laughs> I perfected our new website, <gasps> thenation.space. Thenation.space. Excellent. And, yes. and am I to understand, Anna, there is now a newsletter as well? There is a newsletter. Dan, the newsletter is called Debris Field. <laughs> and it has the stuff we didn't fit into the podcast. There you go. And it'll be once a week, usually on Wednesdays. I'm trying to, I, I think I'm trying to drop it on a day when people might have not listened Mm -hmm. you know a few days after the podcast itself shows up in their feeds just to remind them that there it is there's our podcast it will also probably be the best place to see what we're going to do next because dan and i do have a bad habit of not telling y'all well or we we also will change things on the fly for example trust us when we say we are going to get to kim stanley robinson ministry of the future that will be after 2012 we recognize that this has to be done but I kind of want to do 2012. And also that means the newsletter is already incorrect <laughs> because I said we were doing Ministry of the Future. <laughs> People have one more week to read there you it. Go. So there you go. It's a long right. book, Anna. They will thank us for this. Okay. If you are not already a patron, please consider becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash space the nation. There you can give us suggestions. You can also tweet at us. I am at Anna Marie Cox. And I am at Dan Dresner. 
Dan, why are we talking about this movie? Well, beyond the obvious Emmerich Carey uh, nature of it, I mean, Anna, it's about a curmudgeonly prof who goes to Antarctica. It's like my life story, Anna. <laughs> I have been to Antarctica, and so, you know... Uh, I have been to Antarctica. Yes. I also teach. There we go. It's Therefore... Therefore, I am as good-looking as Dennis Quaid. I think that is the obvious Dan, inference to draw. I have a very... Let's see how far this comparison can go. Okay. What would you do to save your original research? <laughs> okay. So, I will admit, Anna, that, like... So, that scene did make me laugh out loud. It also reminded me... That in the final days when I was working on my dissertation and I was, you know, in grad school, I was like working in my office and suddenly a fire alarm went off. (laughs) And I remember thinking very clearly, it's okay if I die, but the work, the work has to live, Anna. And so, like, I used to, like, I like I was envisioning, like, giving someone my laptop saying, publish this, you know, or something like that. So <laughs> Talk I, about publish or perish. Yeah, I recognize that <laughs> impulse. When I was a grad student, I felt this hard. Like, if I got on a plane, I would think, oh, no, oh, no, I'm going to, what if the plane crashes and my dissertation isn't finished? Like that. So I have to admit, I had a, I had a small, wow. small grain of sympathy for Jack Hall there. All right. I'm impressed. I you know, sometimes I forget how old we are, Dan. <laughs> like that like there wasn't a cloud, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And we had to save things. Yes. Sometimes print them out mm-hmm. and put them somewhere. It's crazy. Crazy times. What did you know about this movie before you sat down to watch it this, this time. time? What I knew was that I don't think I have ever watched this movie like in one continuous run. It was one of these movies where I would occasionally watch it on cable, you know, and particularly the New York flooding scene came on. I would watch that because it was kind of fun to watch. I remember thinking when it was released that, well, obviously, I, I picked up this was a message movie, Anna. But I remember thinking that it might not work as anticipated because it was such a gross exaggeration <laughs> of what could happen. And then finally, the other thing I always think about this film is that Jake Gyllenhaal once petted my dog, Anna, because... Do you have to wait? I guess you should tell us. It's not really that big of a story, but that does sound like a euphemism for something. Oh, yeah, that's fair fair enough. So when a couple years later, Gyllenhaal starred in Proof, which was a movie starring Gwyneth Paltrow set at the University of Chicago. They filmed most of it at the university in, in Hyde Park. I was a professor there at the time. The trailers were right outside Pick Hall, which was where my office was. Is, that's the real ugly modern it's one. It's the right? incredibly ugly modern one that you never see in any movie because it's did the Did they ugly put it in one. proof? No, they did not. What they did okay, wow. What they did was Oof. they parked the trailers outside of Pick Hall because they knew they wouldn't they knew be filming they wouldn't be it. filming there. And I was walking my beagle, Chester, uh, to work because I got to do that at that t- point. And who should I bump into but Jake Gyllenhaal walking out of his trailer. And he looked slightly befuddled, but then looked at the dog and Chester's adorable and just petted him very gently and then moved on. Anna, what about I you? Love him and leave him. That's that's Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, that's yes. what we know about the him. The theme we will come to later. Anna, what about you? What was your uh, experience prior to this watch? I saw this in the theater. Oh, wow. If there was a big, dumb disaster movie (laughs) and it was in the early aughts, I saw that movie. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I've realized, I used to say I like big, dumb movies. The thing is, I don't like all action movies. Like, I'm not a Fast and Furious person, Mm -hmm. you know, like, trying to think what other big action ones there are. Bad Boys, right? That's, That's a big and dumb movie. I just, I like, I actually think I like disaster movies. Apocalypse. I I didn't know about myself. There we go. See, this is what this it's podcast is so much self-discovery on this podcast. Exactly, yes. <laughs> All right, let's get to the story behind the story, Anna. What you got on this one? Well, to remind people what the story is, this is the story of a handsome professor. Actually, he's not a professor. He is a paleoclimatologist. But he's called professor constantly. That was actually one of the things that kept bugging that me. True. Professor Ware. You know, like he's at the <laughs> NOAA, I think. He's at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. But like- right. Got no idea where he's a professor, but sure, call him a prof. It's basically the story of how he's a Cassandra and it turns out climate change happens real fast and he has to go save his son, who's at the New York Public Library. That it? That it? I got it? You're forgetting cool. the, the his son and his soon-to-be girlfriend, just pointing at him. Right. Yes, yes, that, that is true. Because that's a really important part of the movie. Yes, <laughs> there is 
Well, kind of, sure. Yeah. So anyway, the story behind the story. The movie was released on May 28th, 2004. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 45%. It had a budget of $125 million, made $552 million. Huh. And it is the highest grossing Hollywood film ever made in Canada, <laughs> which... I find adorable <laughs> that that's in the trivia. I'm sure a Canadian put it there. <laughs> <laughs> and then as far as like of what inspired it, it was inspired by a book called The Coming Global Superstorm, co-written by Art Bell, who, if you don't know who Art Bell is, Anna, I've, just go look. I've been on Art Bell's show. <gasps> Damn. Yes. I am one degree removed from greatness. When the zombie, Dan, do you want to tell people who Art Bell is? Art Bell was a talk show host on the radio and uh, responsible for Coast to Coast AM. And at least the reason I remember him is because when Theories of International Politics and Zombies came out back in 2011, my publicist was really good, and Art Bell got in touch with me <laughs> and said, "Do you want to do this?" And I have to admit, I had. Oh God. I had no idea what this was, and all I thought was, really, I'm going to get up at 2 a.m. and do this from 2 to 5 a.m.? But I did it, and it was kind of a hoot, is what I remember. Did he take it, like, seriously? No, I think he knew what I was doing. I'm I'm not going to lie on it. As I said, this was from 2 to 5 in the morning. My memory of it is literally just sitting on the couch talking and, like, just saying, please be coherent, please be coherent, please be coherent. I don't. I think he knew what I was doing. Which, you know, it's Art Bell. You probably could have gotten away without being coherent. Maybe. Although I, my Art Bell story is that <laughs> during my first major depression, oh. <laughs> when I could not sleep at night, you would listen to. I listened to Art Bell, okay. the soothing dulcet tones of Art Bell. The co-writer of the coming global superstorm is also an important pop culture figure that us Gen Xers might remember. Whitley Stryber. He's best known for the book Communion. He's a horror writer, and then he wrote a memoir about being abducted by aliens. Oh, okay. That he stood behind. He stood by for his whole life. Yeah. And then he wrote a book about the coming global superstorm. As far as it getting made, well, Emmerich was already pretty well established as being good at making these movies. He didn't have any trouble getting it made. He had his pick of production studios. In fact, there is one question that is asked so often about the casting of this movie that it automatically populates the Google search bar when you enter in the day after tomorrow. And that question is, how old was Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> when he made the day after tomorrow? And what is the answer, Anna? He was 24, Dan. He was 24. He doesn't look 18. I think that's everybody's kind yeah, of like, that's, that's the, that, the thing. That was my gut reaction. Look 17. Looks pretty old. The other two people, the other two decathletes, mm-hmm. Look like they're 18. <laughs> Emmy Rossum, I believe, was 18 when, when she, this was, at least when the film was released. So, yes. I, I poked around forever trying to find, like, some interview about why he was cast. And I couldn't find it. It does seem like he was just looking to transition from your art house stuff around that time. He had auditioned for a couple superhero movies, including Spider-Man and Batman. Mm-hmm. The one piece of trivia I did love is that apparently at some point, this is something I think Emmerich said in an interview himself, which is that at one point in the filming, he was pulled aside by Dennis Quaid and Dennis Quaid reminded him it's an action movie and not a drama. <laughs> so, this is a running theme in Emmerich films. Because yeah. basically this is exactly <laughs> the same. Com- I mean, isn't this the same conversation <laughs> oh Kurt God, Russell had with James Spader <laughs> in, in Stargate? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, clearly some actors get this, and some actors need to be dragged kicking and screaming to this. Need to be told this is why you're getting paid a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. And Dan, while I was watching this movie, I had a question Mm -hmm. that I felt like I needed to answer, and that is, what is the carbon footprint of your average blockbuster movie? Dan, it's big. Oh, no. It's big. It's a big one. It is. This is from a BAFTA paper put out last year actually or 2020 the average tentpole movie creates the same carbon footprint as 11 one-way trips to the moon i don't know why that's the metric but um that's the only way i want to go to the moon yeah oh just one Uh, way it's a one way i I, never get the round trip ticket that is twice as expensive is it because it's 11 is it i guess so yeah Yeah, because otherwise it would be five and a half yeah that's right yeah Yeah. or 2840 tons of greenhouse gas emissions just something to keep in mind dan i have a lot to say about the science of this movie 
I want to listen. How much do you want to know? I, I, I'm going to say I do <laughs> think that maybe some of this should be left to the newsletter. I do recall, however, that like even as I said, my recollection was that it wasn't just critics of climate change. And there were there were people who didn't believe in, you know, like actual prominent right. politicians who didn't believe in climate change, who obviously attacked the movie. There were an awful lot of people who believe very strongly in anthropomorphic climate change that did not like this movie precisely because it was so easy to debunk. Yes and no. Okay, let's hear it. So it is considered one of the worst depictions of science in a major motion picture. <laughs> oh, well, that's it. If that's it, then that's fine. Okay, yes, keep going. Popular Science listed it as one of the most scientifically inaccurate movies of all time. <laughs> Along with, by the way, Dan Favorite, 2012. Oh, excellent. Good, good, good. Good. What I will say from reading around, scientists weren't mad about the science. They were disappointed. <laughs> Anna, when scientists say they're disappointed. Yeah, no, that really hurts. That's that. Yeah, that's like devastating. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's kind of and it is kind of sad to read the commentary because usually it's like, well, as long as you're paying attention now, can I tell you about climate change? <laughs> you know? Right. But apparently it did cause something of a, you know, popular culture conversation. And NASA was asked about it enough times that there is a fact. There's a frequently asked FAQ question. Yes. From NASA and the National Snow and Ice Data Center. <laughs> it's on the National Snow and Ice Data Center website and not the NASA website, which I think says a lot about the relationship between the two organizations. Man. You know, you, you mess with the boys at NSIDC and you run deep, deep trouble. And what's great about it is if you, of course, this will be linked in the newsletter. <laughs> if you read it, like there's two personalities that come out because the answers come from both NASA and the NSIDC. Mm -hmm. And NASA generally answers the questions like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Could this happen? And the NASA answer is no. <laughs> Whereas the NSIDC, they kind of they're like, well, as long as you're asking, here. <laughs> Do you want to know more about snow and ice? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> as long as you're asking about snow and ice, let me tell you more about snow and ice. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm only going to read one section, um, and it's the last question. Very simple question. Is this movie realistic? <laughs> NASA. No. No. <laughs> I, I was going to do the NASA thing. Yes, yes. That is okay. Sorry. Question thirteen, Dan. You can, if you wouldn't mind reading the NASA. I would be happy portion. to. Anna. Okay, right. Yeah. So, I say, question thirteen. Is this movie realistic? No. That's it. And that's it. That's, that's it. it. That's, that's the answer. <laughs> that's the answer. That's the tweet. That's know? the tweet. Yes. <laughs> Whereas here's the NSIDC answer, which. I think says a lot about whoever wrote Do you this. want me to read this as well? Because I'm happy. I, I will. Okay, do you want okay to please. Okay, yes, Dan, okay. please read it. Yes. While aspects of the movie have a distinct basis in fact and real theories of climate change, the film greatly compresses and exaggerates events. Scenarios that take place over a few days or weeks in the movie would actually require centuries to occur. Nevertheless, climate change is real and is having an effect on Earth's ice and oceans. Not tomorrow or the day after, but today. It's kind of sweet, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, lemonade out of lemons there. Whoever sat down and did that FAQ mm -hmm. for the NSIDC, like that in more power to that it. intern cared on it is what I'm saying. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that intern cared. We now have a new section. Yes. It was suggested in the discord. And Karen, if you will. <laughs> Welcome to Chekhov's What's <laughs> Where we... Uh, speculate or at least give our analysis about what really obvious thing comes up early in the movie that later is a really important plot device. <laughs> that is a good summary. Yeah. 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 People know what a Chekhov's thing is, right? Dan, my my nominee for the Chekhov's What's It is Chekhov's Science. Ooh. Okay. All right. You? Anna, I'm going to go... I'm going to give the NASA answer <laughs> rather than the NSIDC answer. <laughs> <laughs> I therefore say it's not the science; it's Chekhov's wolves. It's a good call. I think mostly because it's a little more traditional. It, it's traditional, sure. and it's also the most out there element of the of the plot. I would argue <laughs> that, which is saying something. But like, wait, yes. actually, yeah. 
Our Discord had a whole discussion about wolves <laughs> and coyotes and their prevalence in suburban communities. So fuck you, Dan. <laughs> this isn't a suburban community, Anna. This is Manhattan. But uh, yes. Anyway, you know what? We have taken a long time to get to the <laughs> yes, plot, which I don't know why, because there's so much plot, Dan. There's just so much to get through. Oh, yeah. So <sighs> let's start. All right. Let's get to Act 1, Extreme Weather Channel. Cracks in an Antarctic ice shelf. Snow in New Delhi. Killer hail in Tokyo. Tornadoes in Los Angeles. A high school senior flunking calculus. These all might be signs that rapid climate change is afoot on them. Paleoclimatologist Jack Hall is worried about two things and two things only. First, melting polar ice caps, sabotaging the North Atlantic current, and two, his son flunking calculus. He tries to warn about his first concern at a climate change conference, but a Dick Cheney-looking VP shoots down Jack's prediction that the climate would change between 100 years and 1,000 years due to greenhouse gas emissions, and the VP was right, Anna. But <laughs> I'm going I'm to keep pointing out the ways in which Jack's predictions are wrong. But Professor Terry Rapson, the very merry model of a major British academic, believes that Jack might be onto something. Such a prospect would have profound implications for our large cast of characters. Besides Jack and Rapson, they include Jack's son Sam, team member Laura, Luther, a homeless guy who lives on the streets of Manhattan with his dog Buddha, and cricket noises here. By which I mean, Anna, even compared to Emmerich's earlier films, this one is not exactly brimming with a lot of how to put this carefully compelling human characters. Seriously, one character, Frank, who is on Jack's team, his sole purpose, I believe, in this film is literally to say Jack in a very somber voice. I don't know if he has a line of dialogue that doesn't start with Jack. <laughs> Jack. I, what I'm trying to say, Anna, is that I miss Will Smith. I even miss Judd Hirsch. Yeah. You know, I had a thought that I think Emmerich actually has really good luck with casting yeah. in general, or, or he's good at yeah. it. Like, he gets good actors. He does, yeah. And often gets good performances from those actors. Mm -hmm. Here, I mean, I believe Jake Gyllenhaal was told not to act, <laughs> <laughs> basically. And Dennis Quaid, well, he's he's got something. I, I, I think that. And Ian Holm also. Ian Holm, I actually very, really like. Ian, Ian, Ian Holm, Holm is good. Yeah. And who's the uh, the two scientists that he works with? Both are character actors that. Oh, um, uh, one is Adrian Lester. I know. Adrian Lester. I can't and who the, the white guy is, sorry. <laughs> but they're both, I mean, th that's actually, that's a beautiful little short film. It is a beautiful what little happens. short Yeah. No, that actually I thought was it, lovely. It, it, yes. At that station. I will acknowledge that. But for the most part, you are correct. There are not many characters. I will say they're, they're okay, there's. The owlish atheist, Dan. Right, who we don't even, like, I don't think he gets a line of dialogue until the second half of the film. And, like, yeah, fair enough. But uh, he's a character. It's, it's definitely a character. He's a character. Yes. Yes. And then Jack's wife, Dan, did you forget Jack's wife? I think, I think Emmerich forgets her. So I, I'm not going to even, uh, you know. You, you cut me off at the pass, Anna. I actually asked, was going to ask you later. I, I Is it wrong for me to not mention Jack's wife? Because, in fairness, Jack's wife has the dumbest plot in this film. In the sense of she's a doctor, which is great. She has a cancer patient. She has to take care of the cancer patient. That's the plot. Yeah, I was. It's the sexism, Dan. I mean, <laughs> okay. I don't know. Like, it's bad writing or sexism. Sometimes the two are, you know, just tied together, mm -hmm. which I think might be the case here. Uh, you know, a character they could have had, Dan. What? What could they have had? A chaperone for those <laughs> high school students. <laughs> This was Dan, this was back in two thousand four. In doing Anna. your in doing your traveling around the globe for all the fun stuff you yeah. did, did you ever travel just with your pals? In high school, no. I, yeah. I mean, I or if I did just with my pals, no, no. There were chaperones. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, as Yellow Jacket shows right. us. I mean, that doesn't mean you will not necessarily get into trouble. Mm -hmm. But of course, as we know now, Jake Gyllenhaal could have been the chaperone because he's fucking twenty four <laughs> years old. I have another question. We're spending way more time on this movie than I expected us to, but I have another question, yes. which is, what does Emmerich have against Weatherman? I don't know, but he really doesn't like the Mana, because, like, <laughs> how to put this gently, and we'll talk about this a, a touch later, Emmerich kills a lot of people in a lot of films. There is no denying that. Oh, yeah. There's always a there's high death always count. There's always a high death count. But I don't think of him as a sadistic filmmaker in the sense of, like, the deaths are meaningless very often, but it's not like he takes glee in it. He takes glee, at least as this is shot in the scenes in L.A. where the weathermen are like 
totally destroyed in any one of a number of different ways. There was a sadism there that I wasn't expect. I, I was and they're assholes. Yes. Yeah. Like, that's the other thing that's kind of weird yeah. is, like, one of them, there's one of the dialogue where the guy's, like, in the storm, like a weatherman yeah. is, and he says, as I predicted yesterday. <laughs> well, Anna, neither you or I can identify with the idea that someone, you know, wants to be proven right about something, can we? Nope. I'm just so offended. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Yes. Uh, let's get to Act 2, Tripolar Vortex. After all the bad weather, the FAA grounds flights across the country out of an overabundance of caution while the NOAA convenes a meeting to figure out what's going on. Jack suggests that the polar ice melt shifted the balance between the fresh and salt water and, quote, we've hit a critical desalinization point, end quote. All right, Dan, I'm stopping you. <laughs> yes. Because here's where we can cut. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just get to the v- vortexes. Okay. Like, we just, whatever. New Ice Age, people are wrong, things are happening. I'm just going to point out, again, Jack adjusts the model now and says, (laughs) I'm not giving this up because Jack says that we could have, like, a major Ice Age in six to eight weeks. He's wrong again, Anna. He once again proves it wrong. That's important to point out. He's not a good scientist. (laughs) He just happens to be one with kind of a general theory that sort of fits. This is actually something that they say. No, he's got a like, he's got a solution where he's finally found the problem that it it, it solves. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Or he's got a theory. So, yeah, yeah. So right. meanwhile, Every, everything's everything's cold. Let, let, let's Storms. get to the key things. Meanwhile, yeah. three polar vortexes, or is it vortices? I don't know, are forming over North America, Europe, and Siberia, looking like hurricanes but on land. Professor Rapson's North American Atlantic buoys. <laughs> Alert. Yeah. I just love the way that they describe like weather in this. Yes, movie. exactly. <laughs> um, Professor Rapson's like North her. Atlantic buoys uh, start detecting rapid drops in temperature. Three helicopters on their way to Balmoral to rescue the Royals crash when flying into the eyes of these storms. The fuel in their lines freeze. Jack figures out that the storm is causing super cooled air to be dragged down from the troposphere and nothing exposed to that air will survive. Me- I'm going to do jump in, yeah. jump in yeah. here and. Dan, would you like to know how NASA responded when they were asked if that's possible? I actually would like to hear how NASA responded. No. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not going to lie. That's a relief, frankly. It's good to know this couldn't happen. That's the only reason I let you read that bullshit. <laughs> like, who cares? The royal family? Really? Like, come on. <laughs> Meanwhile, in New York City, Sam is still mooning over Laura, his decathlon partner, and not doing anything about it. And Anna, I think now would be a good time for you to discuss the appeal of mid-2000s Jake Gyllenhaal. Well, I'm tempted, Dan. But to paraphrase Taylor Swift, he's long gone and there's nothing else to do. I forgot about him long enough. I forget why I needed to. There we go. He's dead to me. Okay. Fair enough. I admit, this movie did put me back in my 2004 self, (laughs) who was was not over him. (laughs) He's he's a handsome young man. What can I say? That is totally fair. (laughs) I I get that. That is entirely appropriate. He's a resident of Cannesylvania because everyone likes, you know, Tay Swift more than him, but handsome young man mm-hmm. speaking of handsome men i want to say as you know i don't like dramatic typing <laughs> this movie doesn't have a lot of dramatic no. typing it has dramatic shuffling of paper <laughs> so it's old which I school think actually works a little well yeah. it's it is as we say in my improv class body work yes it's also good sound <laughs> it like you know t- typing is one thing hearing papers being shuffled i mean that's you know i like that yeah there you go yeah All right, Act 3, come on. Act 3, Roland Emmerich really doesn't like New York. Sam, Laura, and friends try to leave New York, but three days of rain, I guess, has shut down mass transit and created gridlock. As they walk somewhere? How did the three days pass? Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a problem. The storm surge floods Manhattan. Sam, Laura, the backup band, and Luther the homeless guy barely make it into the New York Public Library before the water hits them. Side note here, Anna, the one shot in this film that made me laugh out loud is flood cam. There is a brief moment where the flood is about to hit the New York Public Library where the shot is from the wave's point of view. And I just, I laughed out loud at that. Emmerich, he is this 
low rent genius. Yeah. No, no, no. Right? He, like he like low brow. Goes genius. right to my low brow genius. Yeah. It, like uh, he when he gets stuff right, yeah. like it it just it works really really yeah, well. Absolutely. Sam is able to call his dad on an old payphone in the public library. Jack tells him to stay put because it's going to get worse and the eye of the storm is bad, bad, bad. Jack also <laughs> promises to rescue him, even though it's going to get bad, bad, bad. Uh, and also, but sorry, go ahead, yeah, Dan. I, I, no, just, look, just, I'm just reading the plot, Anna, okay? You can't get angry at me because this is what actually happens in the film. All right, okay. Sam believes him, but then fails to mention this warning to anyone else until just before the library refugees decide to head south with the other survivors after the water is frozen and the rain turns to snow. Can I just add here? I love so much when they are like, how do you know this? And he's like, my dad's a climatologist. (laughs) I I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's nothing else you can say, but like, it's. You know, my dad's an actuary, Dan. I just love, like, the idea of, like, he's a climatologist. (laughs) Okay. I mean, if he was smart, he would have said, my dad works for the government and he's here to help. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's sort of what I mean. Like, people are probably like, and that is, he's a climber? Also, also, I have it in my head. I could picture, as he was saying, he's a climatologist. I can picture somewhere else Jack thinking, I'm a paleoclimatologist. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Professor. Uh, There we go. Yes, exactly. All right. But before Jack leaves to rescue Sam, he participates in one last White House briefing, during which he recommends evacuating the southern states and doing nothing for the haters and losers <laughs> in the northern states because it's too late for them to move outside. In an ironic twist, the Mexicans finally close the border, but reopen it after the president agrees to forgive, and this is a direct quote, all Latin American debt, end quote. Uh, meanwhile, why wait? That's my question. Yeah. yeah. Why wait for a crisis? Could just forgive it now. If he can. Dan. You can't actually forgive all the debt, just to oh, be clear. Dan. Dan. You can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> you know, after but years. Money isn't real. Anna, after money years in which we complain real. about excessive executive power, it's worth pointing out that the president can't just do things. Obviously. Okay. Just saying that. Okay. All right. Uh, meanwhile, in New York, they're burning books to stay warm. <laughs> oh, Anna, do you have thoughts about this out of curiosity? I have such strong feelings about it, and I don't know why. You even won't burn the tax code books. This is the part that I find adorable. But keep going. No, yeah. they're books. <laughs> like, well, mainly, mainly, Dan, they're sitting on wooden furniture. Yes. They are literally sitting on wood that they could burn. They're, they're in a wood paneled room. It's they're in a wood paneled room. Yeah. There's there like, is more and, and wood my, in that room than there might be in any other room. There's far more wood than yes, books. Yes. There's more wood than yes. books. They don't have to burn the books. That's the thing. And, and it just also it's this weird like political point for him to make or something. It's this, like I will say this. It's, it's again the same little sadism that I think he shows when he kills the weather reporters or when he treats like the, yeah. It, and it's a weird tick because it's not a comment on anything. I think except like I, oh haha you know civilization has ended so now we're doing this I guess but it's weird. I think that's what it's supposed to be. It's like oh we're going to be pushed to have to burn books. Yeah. But I, well, I mean, obviously burning books is bad. Yes. <laughs> but, but honestly, that's what not the reason why it makes me so mad. Mm-hmm. It's it, that it's a weird political point. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, Dan, have you ever tried to burn a book? I hope not. I have not. But have you? I have not. No. They're hard to burn. <laughs> Wait, how do you know this? Well, I actually just know it because of oh, science. Oh, okay. All right. But have you ever tried to just burn, like, a newspaper that's not wadded up but just folded? Yes, I have. I, I have I've had to put together a lot of fires in my life. You need to have some air in order for things to burn. The paper does not yeah. burn. If you just, like, put it in, if you just put a Sunday New York Times, like, in a fireplace and tried to light it, it would not, not much would happen. Yeah. Okay, it won't happen as effectively. That would be the way to put it. As would. Yes. yes. <laughs> Anna, like we both grown up. Like I, I had to stoke a wood fireplace when I was a kid, and like you put the paper in, and then you put the wood on top of it. So yeah, I'm with you that they should have sort of burned the wood. They should have burned their wood, and also the way they were burning the books wasn't good. That's what I'm trying to yeah. say. It's like they were just ripping the pages yeah. out. Number one, if you have a lot of pages together, it's not going to burn very well because no oxygen circulates. If you do crumple it up, it's not going to last very long. However, I want to give credit, homeless guy, using paper as insulation is actually good. Yes, idea. and that was actually one of the few moments where it's like, okay, that was a good, good piece of writing there, as it were. I like to imagine that this is something that Emmerich 
kind of just randomly like had some homeless person tell him or something like and he's like i'm gonna use that in a movie someday like (laughs) (sighs) meanwhile laura is growing feverish from an infected cut but not so feverish anna that she can't kiss sam after he confesses his true feelings i propose calling this temperature the gyllenhaal cut point if your temperature is below this, <laughs> you can have a, you know, passionate screen kiss and it's totally legit. Above that point, no, there's there's a problem. Well, okay, I have to ask you about this. You might win it. So I guess my point is yes. Jake Gyllenhaal would make anybody feel Ooh, rich. Oh, my. So. Oh my. Okay. I'm not sure about your science there, Dan. Fair enough. Anyway, go ahead. You have, you have other questions. I do have other questions. Although I'm going to also add Emmy Rossum is very cute and like has had a great yes, career after sure. this as well. I really only have one question, which is, again, assuming that the science in this film is real, and I know I'm making a mistake by doing this, <laughs> if the supercooled air is only a problem when the eye is over a part of the planet, why can't the rest of the northern population outside the Acela Corridor move south? Like, they're not being exposed to the eye. It's just a really uh, bad no snowstorm. Damn. As a Texan, I'm kind of like, fine, <laughs> you know? Like, stay up there, assholes. There we go. Like, Haters <laughs> and losers, that's your position. Now I know where I stand. It doesn't make any sense at okay. all. It doesn't make yeah. any sense at all. Like, this freezing thing, you can see it coming, apparently. Right? Yeah. right? Like, that's the whole point, yeah. is that it only lasts for a set amount of time, and then it's over. Mm-hmm. So, sh- anyway. it's. I do want to say yes. that I love that this is a movie where the fleeing from an explosion shot mm-hmm. is fleeing from ice. That's fair. It is It is an innovation in that sense. It, yes. It's kind of yeah. cool. Like, oh my God, the ice is coming. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, there is actually a scene of like di- the dog diving, much like in Independence Day, <laughs> there's a scene of the dog diving to safety as the ice comes for Oh, him. that's right. Yes. 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 And it, Buddha's a cute dog. Again, nice to see the cute Oh, dog. so cute. Probably like a Border Collie yeah. mix, I'm going to say. Although, yeah. well, never mind. That dog is way what? too clean, Anna. Oh, <laughs> The homeless guys. Yeah, that's it's a fair point. Also, the cancer patient looks really yes. good. <laughs> okay, they're, they're, you know what? It's possible they bent some of the rules for Hollywood for this film. I, I can't believe they sold out like that. But yeah, fair enough. But very cute yes. talk. All right, let's close this plot out with a whole new world. Jack and his team head for New York while everyone else flees south, first by uh, truck, then by snowshoe. Frank dies, falling through the glass ceiling of a mall, but not before saying Jack one last time. Speaking of not making it, the president also dies, so Faux Cheney (laughs) is now president, located in the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. Laura's condition worsens, so Sam and his decathlon buds try to get meds from a Russian ship that just happened to float outside. They run into some bad-looking CGI wolves, though. There's a struggle, but fortunately they're able to get the meds and then get back to the library and keep the fire burning just as the eye of the storm passes over, and they can see that the eye of the storm is passing over because it's that kind of film. After the superstorm dissipates, Jack and his Padawan Jason reach the library and find Sam's group alive. Jack radios U.S. forces in Mexico, and a contrite foe Cheney apologizes for past mistakes and sends rescue helicopters. For them, at least. No one else, probably. Because... Yeah, exactly. Anyway. (laughs) Laura puts her head on Sam's shoulder in the rescue chopper, and Anna, I think those crazy kids are going to be okay. The movie closes with astronauts on board the International Space Station saying, the sky never looks so clear over Earth. Problem solved, Anna. Speaking of which, Anna, the second half of this film had some vague ruminating conversations about the future of mankind, and look, they were half-hearted and don't really go anywhere. You know what this screenplay needed? A Mexican writing binge is all I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I I don't know quite how to how to how I feel about the lack of rumination. I think the rumination could have been kind of bad. It's possible. Yeah, um, that's a fair point. I mean, there are ways in which this could have gone much worse. So yes. Yeah, I, I actually think it's funny. You know, according to Emmerich, that studios saw this as an unhappy ending. <laughs> like this is about the happiest ending you could ask for in a global climate change disaster yeah. movie i think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but i think what bothers me the most mm-hmm. jack's trip is completely pointless how dare you say that about jake gyllenhaal he's not gonna be canceled for another 15 years anna <laughs> but jack could have waited till the storm passed mm-hmm. right like he doesn't even get there in time to be of use that's true 
Frank died for no reason, Dan. Oh, my God. Jack murdered Frank to save his son. Yeah. That's selfish bastard. Basically. I think you're right about this. Basically. Yeah. 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 All right. So the, the moral compass of this film spins. <laughs> we'll just say that. Dan. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, as we have discussed, this movie has some garbage elements in it. But there's always some IR in the garbage, Anna. <laughs> I'm very proud of that line. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay, Dan. It's a good okay, line. Okay, thank you. So three elements of IR that you can see in this film. The first is the concept of epistemic communities. Epistemic communities are communities of experts that can be within or without the government. But nonetheless, if they develop a common consensus about what's happening in the state of the world, that epistemic community can actually influence politicians to do things they would otherwise not do. So the classic article on this uh, looks at how a bunch of climate scientists actually got the Reagan administration, not known as really a huge friend of the environment, to agree to the Montreal Protocol to protect the stratospheric ozone. And I believe you and I talked about this offline, as it were, during the Trump administration, because it's something that happened a lot there, Yes, too. exactly. Right. Even Trump, during the early stages of the pandemic, acknowledges that there's a pandemic and that like we actually have to engage <laughs> in a lockdown of some sort or, or something. Eventually, it, it breaks down. And, we'll, you know, epistemic communities are not always that powerful. Mm -hmm. But it is why Jack's really stupid boss, and I cannot stress enough how dumb and politically unsavvy Jack's boss is, keeps bringing Jack in to piss off the VP, which is like if you're trying to convince someone powerful to do something, you're not going to bring in the guy that like tried to own him at a conference previously. That's not the way you would do this. But nonetheless. Oh, yes. The mic drop of an ice chunk the size of Rhode exactly. Island. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Point being, we All do right. like the NOAA meeting is a classic example of an epistemic community in action. The second piece of uh, international relations is comes from Philip Tetlock, who does public opinion and talks about the idea of cognitive taboos. So very often if either the public or policymakers are asked to choose between what we would consider sacred values. Very often, our natural impulse is to not even think about this as a choice. Like, it's just, we won't even talk about it. We won't even consider it. It's a taboo thing. And you see that in the, the White House meeting where Cheney, the faux Cheney says, I refuse to believe that we, we should sacrifice the northern half of the country to save the southern half. And this is, you then have the military guy saying, it's called triage, you know, Mr. Vice President, or, or something along those lines. To be fair, Fo Cheney's reluctance is entirely predictable. That's how we're hardwired. And then finally, this is the part where it's truly garbage IR, but nonetheless in a weird way sort of right, which is climate change is going to produce climate migration. It's going to produce climate refugees. As parts of the planet become less and less inhabitable, shockingly, people who live in those places are going to move to the parts of the planet that are considered more habitable. Now, the the funky inverse of the day after tomorrow is the idea that it would actually be the people in the developed world fleeing into Mexico or presumably Europeans fleeing into Africa or, you know, everyone in Asia fleeing into India or what have you. If we're being honest, this is not how the refugee flow is going to go in any parts of the globe. It's going to be the reverse. And this is the nasty truth about climate change, which is even though, you know, you can argue the developed countries were responsible for an awful lot of the greenhouse gases emitted up until the last two decades or so. The truth is, is that the countries that are probably best prepared to adapt to climate change are also the wealthy countries. And unsurprisingly, there is going to be an issue with respect to climate refugees coming from the South to the North. And I think this was something that was reminiscence that we talked about, dealt with this as yeah. well. And that was, yeah. so So here's the most damning thing. I and it is kind of already yes. happening. Here's the most damning thing I can say about the day after tomorrow. Reminiscence was more accurate on this point. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. So, Anna? Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, I have mountains of data, but nowhere near <laughs> enough computer power to analyze it. <laughs> oh, bravo. Bravo, Cox. Thank you. Now, there is this weird libertarian feint in the movie, right? Where they burn the tax law books. Sure. But they also do the thing with the Latin American mm -hmm. debt, which, as I said earlier, why not just do that now? You pointed out, well, you can't really just do it. Again, I say money is illusion. But you could do some debt of it. There's a, no denying that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, debt is, a, you know, something we've agreed to, to say exists. Yeah. So it exists. 
What really disturbed me about this movie, though, if we get to the sort of class commentary, this isn't the movie's critique of capitalism. This is just where capitalism shows up in Mm. the movie. It depicts a future in which everyone is affected the same. You just finished talking about how that's not true. And actually, I would argue it's even worse than that, Anna, because in the film, the homeless guy is better off because he actually knows how to scrounge compared to the other denizens of the library. But yeah. I'm just going to say what what it does is it, and I think this is somewhat intentional. It takes the the rich kid lives in the penthouse mm-hmm. apartment and the homeless guy, and they're put on the same level. Right. It's prop. I'm guessing that's a little bit of like Emmerich being like, see, like we're all going to have to pull yeah, together, and we're going to all become equal. Yeah. And of course, climate change is happening right now, and the inequality is surfacing mm-hmm. right now, and we already see it at work, and it's only going to get worse. But really, Dan. Mm-hmm. Yes, Anna. This movie is an indictment of our refusal to invest in infrastructure. <laughs> what can I yeah. say? Getting to the actual sort of political piece, the climate change criticism or, or the role of the Cheney character, yeah. there was someone in our Discord, I, I forget who, but someone in the Discord community said that his recollection of the movie was that it pissed him off in the same way that Independence Day pissed me off in its depiction of environmentalism, which is that it's a one per, it's atomized. Oh, right, yes, yes, right? yes. Mm-hmm. That the responsibility for climate change relies on an individual person, mm-hmm. right? And we all have to like recycle and use paper straws and whatnot. I, I think this movie is worse. Ooh. I think it presents climate change as an easy problem to solve. Yes. And that the only problem is people don't believe the science. Mm-hmm. I think you would attest, Dan. That's not the problem. That is not the problem. The problem is, is that, and, and let me put this way: I think one thing that has actually changed since this film came out is that, honestly, even within the United States, there is a stronger belief now in anthropogenic climate change mm-hmm. than there was when the film came out. 67% of right. Americans. That's not the issue. Only 33% of Republicans, but that's, and that's actually important. Yeah, that that matters. Go ahead. Yeah. The issue is, and this is the reason why there's always this, this issue, is that changing, you know, Addressing climate change is a costly endeavor. It does require significant changes in behavior. It requires, you know, particular, if you want to do it properly, shifts in both taxes and incentives of the way people behave. It's, it's rethinking culture. Yeah. And I w- like it's rethinking the way we think about stuff. I mean, Naomi Klein, as far as like the big change in culture mm-hmm. piece, Disagree, agree, whatever their criticisms be made, but I love her analogy that it would take the kind of a collective will that America did show like during World War II. Right, but that's... In terms of like victory gardens and like also big changes. Yeah, right? it requires like, both little and you, big changes. Yes. And it's something that you can get a mass of people to agree to if you really want to, or if there's proper See, motivation. my interpretation of that is different, which is that, yes, I think I agree to some extent that you're talking about a World War II level kind of mobilization. That kind of mobilization is also extremely rare, and it's really difficult to pull off, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. I agree. But I'm just saying, like, some people would say, no, that's we can't even do it. We should just, like, that's impossible. No, no, that's that's... That's not the way I would approach it. I'm yeah. saying we have done yes. it before. And if you want to find an example, I agree with Naomi Klein. Okay. That's a good there example. There is a, um, an excellent article, which I will put, I will, we will go in the newsletter by my colleagues, uh, Jeff Colgan, Jessica Green, and Thomas Hale, pointing out all the ways in which the politics of climate change are really, really hard. Yeah. That the political economy of this is such that you have some people who hold assets like oil companies that require not addressing climate change. And then you have other people with assets that might be wiped out from climate change, like let's say uh, real estate on the coast of Florida. And that this really is, is what the, the term they use is that it's an existential form of politics, which is difficult to resolve. Yeah, it's super fucking depressing yeah. too. I just want to say one little piece on the 33% of Republicans who do not believe in anthropocentric climate change. That That's an example, obviously, of something we've seen during the pandemic, yeah. which is the polarization of science, mm-hmm. uh, or at least the scientific beliefs, I guess. Uh, it's not really science that polar is polarized. And there are two interesting things that I know about that, or I think they're interesting. One is that there's no correlation between intelligence and climate mm-hmm. denial. And in fact, some of the most well-educated Republicans are the ones that will say that they doubt climate change. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it has nothing to do with how smart you are. And uh, some studies have shown that people who know a lot or think they know a lot about climate change are the hardest minds 
I would suggest that that's probably not unique to climate change. That's a more general phenomenon, which is the smarter you are, if you have an errant belief, you're probably also way better at rationalizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's exactly right. That's not surprising. And the other thing that I want to say is that that does make the villain a lot worse than just denial, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are people that know full well that climate change is happening. There are people sitting in the Senate, sitting in Congress, that I am quite sure believe in their heart of hearts this is happening and are just choosing to make it a culture war issue Mm -hmm. and that's a level of evil that doesn't get presented in this movie and i think it's pretty bad that's fair so anyway moving on (laughs) dan (laughs) on that cheery note let's segue emmerich tropes what do you got oh a couple things so uh dumb conference dialogue you know, this movie opens with it, much like the the Stargate conference as well. It's just, you know, not the way that conferences are run. There's a divorced male protagonist, shockingly. You know, although I will say this, I don't think he reunites with Seal Ward at the end. I was a little surprised by that. Well, we don't see it, but that's because he's forgotten yeah. about her. That's because Emmerich's <laughs> Because like, Emmerich has forgotten what? about her, too. What? Yes, exactly. Yeah. A crack in the floor. You, we see this in in Antarctica in the very beginning. Oh, We're right. going to see it in 2012, I guarantee, you know, uh, a little bit later. Much like most Emmerich films, there are a few gestures at the very beginning about the fact that the rest of the world exists. And then the final three quarters of the film are almost entirely in the United States, much like Independence Day and other films we will get to. And then really, I do think this is Emmerich's true genius as a big budget filmmaker. And it is the reason why I am very much looking forward to Moonfall is that Emmerich has this gift of allowing the audience not to care about the massive loss of life that we see. So we can cheer and feel cheered up when we see that there are survivors. It really like it. There's something I suppose as a if I if I was an ethicist, I would be mildly appalled by this as a moviegoer. I think it works and I'm really happy about it. Number one, that's the genius of capitalism. <laughs> Adorno would agree this movie is training us that yeah. way. And that is one reason why people have trouble moving on climate change, mm-hmm. honestly, is that we can't imagine the scale of catastrophe. We can't imagine the scale of loss of life. Um, what about you, Anna? Well, uh, uh, not quite as serious points. <laughs> uh, dogs. <laughs> I think I know Emmerich likes dogs he has two dogs he has two rescue oh, dogs for him. himself and i am is there a dog in 2012 i think there might there might be yes anyway, yes there, there is two... there's um there's the little chihuahua there is a, a dog, dog. see yeah. i think that this might be a theme that we have discovered yep. i don't know if anyone else has tapped into this particular <laughs> emmerich trope so you know dogs, dogs. tm Anna and Dan. <laughs> the other thing is apparently shitty work-life balance is the only reason people get divorced <laughs> but i I will say that yes there there was one scene where i believe like you know jack and and uh i think it what's the oh god hold on what's her name i don't bother don't bother don't bother looking sorry there's jack and (laughs) seal award are are talking they're reminiscing at one point jack and jack and jack's wife (laughs) jack and jack's wife the doctor are reminiscing about some picture that he's looking at in which jack's wife and sam went on a trip and i still remember jack you know like the wife accused jack yeah you know why you weren't there because you were working on your dissertation In Alaska. That's got to burn. Oh, you know what? I don't apologize for working on my dissertation. I'm sorry. I have to say, like, there is such a thing as an academic widow. Yeah, that's true. You know? That's true. I have very, very strong memories of childhood of my dad locking himself in his office. (laughs) (laughs) Which I only really remember because he had French doors. Oh, you could could see see into him working. Oh, that's. I'm not trying to. I wasn't like this sad okay, child. Just, it was just funny to me. It was like he was just like an exhibit in the zoo. Like <laughs> he was in the Smithsonian. He was like that mastodon yeah, that was he, frozen. You know, instantaneously. He was just like. Yes. He was just working. Yeah. I could just see him work. All right, Dan. Oh my God. It's it's chunks of ice. Oh, oh no! I think. Oh no! It's hail. It's yeah. it's the it's the debris field. Where we talk about the stuff we didn't talk about earlier, Dan, what okay. do you got? I, as I said, I laughed at, at Flood Camp. I also laughed when Faux Cheney is giving his presidential address. It is being broadcast on the Weather Channel. 
And that was just chef's kiss. I, I, I admire that. I, again, giggled when the movie starts. It's raining on the Fox logo, Anna. You see the storm break. And also a Fox News affiliate is covering extreme weather. So, you know, also... There is some accuracy. There is some accuracy in yeah. this movie. And just two other things. Actually, this was a small point, but this was actually one of the rare moments of subtlety, which is there are parallel moments where you see both Jack and his son lead teams. Like Jack is going to rescue. Two of his, his subordinates join him. When Sam is going to get the meds, two people join him as well. It was the one moment where I was like, okay, there was actually some subtlety there. I actually liked that. And then I will just close with the following observation. Sam's calculus teacher was right to flunk him. In math, you always have to show your work. It's not a question of whether you get the right answer. It's how you know you got the right answer. Honestly. That is not true. I, nope. Nope. That I disagree strongly on this. Nope. nope. Dad's a math professor, Dan. Uh, wait, hold on. I had this problem. It's, I had this problem. You know what? He didn't. It, yes, you should you show, your work, show your work. But you know what? You don't flunk them. Okay, that's fair. You do not flunk Although them. Although if literally, like, you do a math test and all, you, like, on calculus, and all you do is have correct answers. Well, number one, actually, that wouldn't be the proper answer. I will say that you can't, calculus in and of itself, you cannot simply write an answer correct. down. It's not, like, 12. Well, no, you can, like, right? show that, what is the derivative of the, you know, well, but, like, yeah. yeah. but it's, it's like, it's, it is the process. Like, it, calculus right. is a yeah, process. Ma- I mean, and that, at, at math at that level, it is all about the process. We but reached I, a happy medium, yes, which is they, he should be punished for not showing his work. Is all I'm trying to say. And all, but I would say the bad thing is that I don't think calculus. I re, I honestly don't think that you can do a calculus problem and like not, in your paper. head. Yeah, like no, no. and not and yeah, in your exactly. Head. There's like, no way. Like I, I mean, unless he's a super genius, is all I'm saying. But yeah, right. It's not just showing your work. It's like figuring. Anyway, <laughs> we are again taking <laughs> this movie time. too seriously, Wait. Anna. We are taking movie movie much more seriously than it yes. took itself. I will okay. go now. Please. These are my things. Okay. Perry King, who plays the president, is a motion smoothed bill. <laughs> Mentioned earlier, the whole timeline is very unclear. Yeah. It's just kind of funny because it seems to be very important, like when things are happening. But then again, we have no idea how much time has mm-hmm. passed. The nerd atheist justifies holding on to his Gutenberg Bible because he calls it the first book. Dan, what's wrong with that sentence? It's not the first book. There's no, there's it's no like such the thing as a first book. book. That's like... There's no... Yeah, there's no book. It's like the first... It's like... I don't even know how to say it. Like the first wheel. There is... No, no. Right? There is a very bad Jennifer Lopez movie, I remember, in which she's playing a teacher who... A, it seduces a student and then the student turns out to stalker where the student gives her it's, oh i this, that's actually that's actually kind of a fun yeah. movie i mean pre me too but okay yeah. but but like if you remember <laughs> he gives her like an, a copy of the iliad and she looks at it and says this is a first edition of the iliad and i just <laughs> laughed i laughed and laughed and laughed on it that that's that's the level of this of that joke if you remember that uh, also, the New York Public Library doesn't have a Gutenberg <laughs> Bible, though there is one down the street at the Morgan oh. Library. Dan, the Gutenberg Bible is famous not because it's the first book. Dan, why is it, it famous? It is the first book that was printed on movable type. There you go. It's the first book that showed us you could yes. print books, yes. like multiple books. It's actually famous not because there's only one. It's you could make more of them. Exactly. One. Yes. Good point. That's yep. right. Uh, I was going to say... I was going to mock this movie for the cheering at the academic decathlon. How dare you? <laughs> but Dan, there are spectators at academic decathlons. <laughs> there are, and there are rules about it. I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Like, go support your local academic decathlon oh, team. Yeah. I also think that there's some inventive life endangerment gimmicks in this movie. I think that's something Emmerich is kind of good mm. at. There's the infection, there's the wolves, and there's the instant yes. freeze. I mean, he must have been so proud of himself when he came up with the instant freeze. Yeah, right? and that's and it's a good it, it's a good movie trip. Like you know, I like the helicopter yeah. scene where they all fr- the fuel in the lines freeze. I that was I remember the first time I watched that being like, oh okay, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess the royal family just too bad, right? Yeah. You think? No more royal family? I think that's the case. Oh, that's actually something that's going to come up again in 2012. But yeah, keep going. (laughs) Dan, there is a a decathlon after party, which I assume (laughs) happened all the time. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) What happens at the academic decathlon after party, Anna, stays in the (laughs) academic decathlon after party. 
And I'm going to say, I've probably seen this movie 10 times. And the first time I noticed this, Sam's name tag says Yoda. <laughs> which is actually really yeah. cool. <laughs> and, and I, if I were not already a like 17-year-old girl who would find Jake Gyllenhaal extremely attractive, that would probably, if I wasn't already thinking, I would like to know this person. <laughs> In the biblical sense, Yoda name tag would have done it. Emmerich, we didn't talk about it a bunch in this episode. And I guess we've only mentioned it uh, tangentially, but he does have some cool shots, right? Like every once in a while, you're like, oh, wow, that's, there's a director doing this. There's someone who's like, has a really good sense of scale, a really interesting sense of like how things fit together. When they enter the library after the snowstorm, Mm -hmm. From the window, that is just the coolest shot. Yeah, I am going to say, and I'm. I was thinking I was not going to bring it up. But I'm going to bring it up. There's also some lazy shots because, okay. like, it's the debris field. It's a debris field. Like trash. you know, come on. They at one point, you know, as I said, Laura's sick. They've got to get some antibiotics. That's fine. They come up with the idea that they got to go on the Russian ship to get the antibiotics, and they were probably right. That was the only place to do it. Except that we see when they're raiding the vending oh, machines man. that there is a first aid kit in the background. It's right there, Anna. Like, why put that there if you know what you're going to be doing later in the film? Listeners, Dan and I had a very contentious text argument about this, which I will not attempt to recreate. That would be good because it would take another twenty minutes. I'm just going to say that on one point, I was right. Anna was right on one point. I was right on another point. Which is that that medical kit would not have It probably wouldn't have had antibiotics. All I'm saying is it shouldn't be in the shot. And how do I know that? Because I looked up the OSHA guidelines. <laughs> on what I'm supposed to be That's how much we care about you, listeners. We wanted to make sure we were right about no. this. That's actually how much I care about being right. Um, <laughs> Dan, I, I, one of the reasons that um, calculus scene, like, where I'm like, yeah, he should have passed him, he should have mm-hmm. failed him, is I used to argue with teachers about math. Like, I mean, uh, if it makes you feel any better, look, Anna, look what that, look what that, look where that. If it makes you feel me. any better, Anna, I actually did <laughs> flunk sixth grade math because I didn't do any homework. No, I already feel pretty good about my oh, math okay, skills. Well, never mind. <laughs> like, but sure, you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> well, no, I flunked sixth grade math not because I didn't know it, but because I didn't do the homework because I thought it was stupid. Oh, okay. Well, and you're not an idiot. I mean, that was that was very flippant yes. of me. Lots of very smart people have trouble yes. with math, Dan. So, it's also my dad. Hi, dad. <laughs> if you're listening, one thing he always liked to remind me because I have very mild dyslexia. Like, just I reverse numbers. Oh, wow. Basically, okay. and you were still good at math. Yeah. That's impressive, actually. And I did actually, like, in third grade, start getting bad grades in math because for two reasons. One, I was flipping numbers to times tables. I couldn't memorize them. I had trouble memorizing them. I kept on doing them. Yeah, Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, I would actually sit there and think about, okay, eight times two, three times You weren't memorizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't, yeah. You didn't do the schoolhouse um, rock thing. Right. I just, like, I would sit there and be like, okay, eight times two is 16. All right, now eight times. I mean, I wouldn't just, like, write down the numbers. Yeah. You know? And my dad consoled me by saying, Anna, what you're doing isn't math. It's arithmetic. Ooh. So. In the words of Keanu Reeves. Math is. Whoa. Yeah. Right. When he, the, the, the scorn in his voice when he said arithmetic. <laughs> I'm just, it's always, I just love it. Really. <laughs> arithmetic. It's arithmetic. All right. I think that just about wraps up God, I uh, hope so. <laughs> our disquisition on the a Roland Emmerich film, The Day After Tomorrow. We are doing Moonfall next, or as Dan puts Moonfall. it. Which, I'll just say now, it has gotten some mixed reviews. No. <laughs> But I've actually refused to read the reviews. I've just seen some headlines. Some people really don't like it. Some people see the genius uh, that is uh, Roland Emmerich's big dumb genius. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we're doing 2012, mm-hmm. which is a change in the schedule. Then again, the Ministry of the Future is our penance. Although I'm sure it's a good book. I keep on wanting to say that. It's just that it's I'm scared of Obama books mm-hmm. now. Like... 
if he's recommended a science fiction book, it's just like it's gonna it's probably gonna hurt. I've read the first fifty pages, Anna. I I think you'll be okay. Okay. Well, actually, I read the first chapter and I couldn't read more because it was just like so fucking depressing. It was pretty bleak. But yeah. So I don't think we have much else. Hey, folks, visit the new website. The nation space. The nation space. If you become a patron, you get the newsletter. I just realized, speaking right now, that I didn't put the link to subscribe to the newsletter anywhere. But that'll be fixed by the time you hear this podcast, I am quite certain. Yes. Yes, that it will. It will be probably (laughs) on the website. I I used to code, Dan. (laughs) That line belongs in an Emmerich film, Anna. (laughs) I I say it very loosely. I used to be able to write HTML, but that's not really what people consider coding. (laughs) Not anymore. Tech Savvy Me, signing off. Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.